you are to say to them, these are the words of the Lord, and they will know that they have a prophet among them, whether they listen or whether in their rebelliousness they refuse to listen. I speak to you in the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, in light of the vision recorded in Ezekiel chapter 1, it is not certain that what we have among us is a lunatic and not a prophet. The description of the prophet's vision resembles more a fireworks display or a drug trip or perhaps a fireworks display while taking drugs. Storm winds, brilliant lights, fire, fantastic creatures, fused beasts and humans, whirring wheels, bejeweled wheels, wheels with eyes, rising, moving, stopping, and the noise, mighty torrents and thunderclaps, the din of an army encampment and the rising of voices. It is understandable why in early Judaism this chapter was banned from being read in the synagogue and from being studied in the schools. One can occasionally wonder whether the church should exercise a similar restriction regarding parts of the book of Revelation. And yet we are in the presence of a prophet. And the assurance that this is the case is to be found in our passage for today. For whereas the first chapter consisted largely of a description of the author's ecstatic vision, in chapter 2, this vision is complemented by a divine word. In chapter 1, we may have concluded that Ezekiel was clearly among the ranks of the mystics. And we may even have wondered, as some scholars do, whether he was suffering from a pathological condition. But now it becomes evident that as jarring and incoherent as his visions may be, he has been enlisted as a prophet. For now the word of the Lord addresses him, and God's Spirit fills him, raises him up, and sends him out. In the course of our sermon series on the book of Ezekiel, we will be offered many opportunities to deepen our understanding of the nature of biblical prophecy and the calling of the prophet. And we may well ask whether the office of the prophet still exists today, or to what degree Christians may describe their roles in the church and in the world as prophetic. These important questions will not find satisfactory answers in this morning's passage, and yet there are features of the divine call on Ezekiel's life that may be relevant to anyone seeking the will of God. And many of these features can be found in the testimonies of the other major prophets and other biblical figures. So at the outset, let us say that this twofold manner of communication, chapter 1 and chapter 2, 
is characteristic of divine revelation. For it is rare that God's commission comes in words alone or experiences alone. Both are agents of vocation. The words are necessary to interpret the experiences, while the experiences serve the purposes of confirming and demonstrating the words. In a phrase perhaps reminiscent of this very passage, St. Paul recounts how his journey to Damascus was interrupted by the experience of a blinding light that caused his traveling companions to fall to the ground. This would have been little more than a terrifying vision, except that it was accompanied by a voice from heaven, saying, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but get to your feet, for I have appeared to you for a purpose. The call of God on one's life will inevitably be mediated by both words and experiences. And the conviction that God has issued a summons to us will often be a measure of how these words and experiences illumine each other. Those of you who were with us for our discussion of discernment yesterday afternoon will have heard examples of this in the stories of both of our speakers. But life is full of both words and experiences, you may say. And it is not always possible to make sense of them or to see how they relate to one another. How is one to know that the call comes from God, that an event in our lives is not just random, that the explanation is reliable? Well, there is no infallible litmus test. The story of Ezekiel's commission, nevertheless, gives us helpful ways of thinking about this question. And so we want to say something first about the nature of vocation in general, and then to touch on the matter of the prophetic vocation. The first thing to note is that when the Word of God comes to Ezekiel at the end of chapter 1, Ezekiel is flat on his face awed by the divine majesty revealed to him in his vision. It is a posture of abject humility and embodies a sense of unworthiness at being in the proximity of the divine. The Lord furthermore addresses Ezekiel, particularly in his mortality. The New Revised Standard Version repeatedly addresses him as, O mortal, the Hebrew phrase, is son of man, he calls him. This is not the messianic title of Daniel or the Gospels, but it's used some 87 times in the book to underline Ezekiel's creatureliness. It is a reminder that the prophet is the mouthpiece and nothing more of the divine will. And in the message of judgment and deliverance that he will be called to convey, his status as a lowly mortal will prevent him from thinking that he has any responsibility in implementing the prophecies. For he will be reminded continually that though his words bear power, they are not his words. It is not his power. Twice in these early verses, God says to Ezekiel, 
I am sending you. The initiative, words, and power lies with God. Now, a pitfall in any attempt to discern our vocation is to believe that we somehow merit God's call. A character in one of C.S. Lewis's novels, while reflecting on why he might have been chosen for a particular mission, states that one can never see, or not till long afterwards, why anyone was selected for any job. And when one does, it is usually some reason that leaves no room for vanity. A former parishioner of mine was designated a poet laureate in Saskatchewan. And when I asked him once how he came up with his poetic ideas, he replied rather cryptically that he tried to be the kind of person to whom poetic ideas came. (laughs) Modesty, submissiveness, the awareness of our weaknesses and shortcomings, a fundamental belief in our native unsuitability. These are demeanors conducive to detecting the call of God in our lives. But this leads us then to the question of purpose. I am sending you, the Lord God said to Ezekiel. But what was God sending Ezekiel to? What was his mission? The answer is, rather simply, that he is given the task of proclaiming God's message. This generation to which I am sending you is stubborn and obstinate. You are to say to them, these are the words of the Lord. Now, we don't know yet what these words entail. Indeed, it's rather remarkable that throughout chapter 2 and chapter 3, While the commission to go is repeated, we are never told what these words of the Lord actually are. In fact, in a kind of great anticlimax at the end of chapter 3, when Ezekiel is bidden to rendezvous with the Lord in the valley so that the Lord might address him and, and confirm his commission, Ezekiel receives instruction to go back home, to lock the doors, and to be bound and gagged so that he shall not be able to convey the words of God. And we read that and think, is there such a vocation? A vocation to silence? A calling for inaction? My friends, this too is part of the prophetic commission. For while Ezekiel is not addressing the people of Israel directly with the divine word, He has himself received such a word and is compelled to live according to it. Indeed, God gives him an appetite for this word, which in the dramatic example of the eating of the scroll is received as a sweet honey sandwich. And in the end, this is the picture. It is the very essence of biblical prophecy. Prophecy is not just a telling of the future in poetic speech or a prognostication with a this is the word of the Lord slapped on. Prophecy is both the declaration and demonstration of God's word in the world. In his discussion of the prophetic consciousness, Walter Brueggemann calls these imagination and implementation. 
And they are both components of any truly prophetic commission. For prophecy confronts the world in both the prophet's words and works. One might say that it also confirms this divine alchemy that brings word and experience together into a single mode of address. And I think that this may serve as our second insight from the text. For if the first thing we learn is that humility is the substrate of the divine call, the second is that the call, if it is faithfully received, involves both proclamation and obedience. In this respect, every attempt of the Christian to embrace and teach the Word of God is itself an act of prophecy. In this respect, when the church itself seeks to live under and to live out the Word of God, it is living prophetically. Even as we sit under judgment or hold on to hope, we are living prophetically, for we are embodying a word of God that points to a reality that is greater than our own. Now, as we shall see many times over in the book of Ezekiel, the prophet's faithful response occasionally, maybe even often, will defy human logic and risk offending human pride. We are given some insight into how this works as Ezekiel's story unfolds. While there may be some who heed the prophet's words, God warns Ezekiel that many will refuse to listen. They shall be brazen and stubborn, for they are a rebellious people. And yet he is not to be discouraged, for the test of a prophet's legitimacy is not the effectiveness of the prophet's wor word in changing the world. That is God's domain. The prophet's sole responsibility is to discharge his or her duty faithfully. Indeed, God warns Ezekiel that neglect of his prophetic duties will make him responsible for the fate of those who did not receive the divine warning he was sent to deliver. But Ezekiel has every reason to be confident. For as he was told, it is God's word and not his own that he is bidden to declare. And what is more, God has given him a hard-headedness to match their own. His very name, Ezekiel, means God strengthens. God will give us what we need to be faithful in our seemingly impossible tasks. And so we ask, what is the nature of our own vocations. Some of us may struggle with questions of where God is calling us to serve and in what capacity. This morning, let us be mindful of two important things. The first is that vision will be granted to those who ask in humility and to those who recognize their own poverty in asking. The second is that vocation involves both words and deeds both proclamation and obedience. This is not a pastoral or Episcopal vocation particularly. It is rather the vocation of every Christian who seeks to live by the words of Scripture. It is the vocation of the church herself. 
And so we ask, where is the prophetic Christian here this morning? Where is the prophetic church in our community, in our country? There are indeed powerful prophets among us. And I conclude with the example of one individual who's been in the news lately, a Boston pastor who has been at the forefront of efforts to bring peace and security into the troubled inner city. Some of you may know the name of Eugene Rivers. Eugene grew up in the Philadelphia slums and was a gang member at the age of 12. But at the age of 13, his life turned a corner when he heard Billy Graham on the radio. He was a bright lad. He audited classes at Yale and eventually spent three years at Harvard. And there he married Jackie, a Harvard graduate. In 1984, Eugene and Jackie moved to Dorchester in Boston. It is a notoriously violent neighborhood. And there he established the Azusa Christian Community, a community committed to preaching and teaching the gospel to, the people, to people of African descent. But life was not easy. The first time the river's home was struck with gunfire that almost hit their son Malcolm, the reporters swarmed them. And one reporter asked, what are you going to do? Eugene said, I looked at my wife Jackie and said to her, it's your call. She said, I feel called by God to be in this neighborhood. And because I feel called, I feel protected. If I'm not where the Lord is calling me, I'm not safe. My friends, where the Lord calls, the Lord abides. We recognize, Eugene continued, that a community of faith that is willing to really follow the leading of the Holy Spirit can make a difference in the worst neighborhood. Dramatic changes will always require dramatic sacrifices. Dramatic blessings have dramatic costs. In our own longing for God, and in the search for our own vocations, may God grant us both the humility and the courage to go where he leads for the greater glory of his Son. Amen.